0: Pod pals and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I am your host Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. This week, my guest is music supervisor Lucy Bright, which feels appropriate for this grey and drizzly day. Avid fans might recall that I spoke to music supervisor Jen Moss way back in the first season of the podcast, and I was extremely excited to dip my toe back into that world. I think. It's one of those roles where you watch a film and you just kind of have no idea that it exists or that someone is assigned to pick and clear the music that you're hearing and that they play an integral role in designing a film soundtrack. So it's a perfect match for Best Girl Grip in that way. And given Lucy's track record, pun intended, I was glad to be reacquainting myself with that role from her perspective. Lucy started out at Mute Records, working with artists such as Nick Cave and Depeche Mode, before moving to Warner Classics for six years, and then leaving to manage composer Michael Nyman. She joined the film and TV department of publisher Music Sales, now Wise Music, in 2008, and worked there for a decade. In 2020, she launched her own music publishing company, Bright Notion Music, signing composers like Anne Nicotin, Jed Kerzel, and Tamar Carly-Brown. Lucy has supervised some of the most critically acclaimed British films and TV shows in recent years, including The Unloved, The Arbor, Slow West, Southcliffe, McMafia, This Is England 90, Daphne, The Virtues, The Nest, Life After Life and BAFTA winning short The Swimmer. Most recently, she has worked on two forthcoming films, Charlotte Wells' directorial debut *After Sun*, which is showing at this year's London Film Festival and then coming to UK cinemas via MUBI on the 18th of November. And I can testify, it has a truly phenomenal soundtrack. And Todd Field's Tar, set within the world of classical music, in which Cate Blanchett plays the first female conductor of a German orchestra. It recently premiered to critical acclaim at the Venice Film Festival and is one of my most hotly anticipated films, of the year. We spoke about how Lucy got her start in the music industry and then gradually discovered the role of music supervision, getting her first credit as a music supervisor on Samantha Morton's TV film The Unloved, how she collaborates with directors and other HODs to build a soundtrack, why certain songs cost more than others, how needle drops happen, and what songs she is particularly proud of clearing for use in a film. This was a fun conversation and it was such a joy actually to delve into the world of music and talk about Kate Bush and James and the 90s by way of the film industry so I hope you get something from it. This is episode 120 of Best Girl Grip. I always like to start off in higher education. I just think that's where we start to think about what we might want to do with our lives and our careers. So did you go to university? And if so, what did you study there?
1: I did go to university. I went to University College London and I studied history of art. But interestingly, and I I do agree that higher education being that moment where you can think about things. But actually, I had already started work before that, started straight from My A-levels, I mean, literally, I think I went for the interview like the day after my last exam for a job at Mute Records and got it. And so that's what I did in my gap year. Yeah, which was really, really lucky in many ways. I still think about that kind of moment of I saw the ad in Time Out for receptionist at Mute Records. And unlike other people who were probably more organised, didn't really have a plan for my gap year so I just thought yeah that would be great that's much more what I would like to do and and would Mm -hmm. sort of suit me than necessarily doing the other more international things that people go off and do on their gap years.
0: So Mute Records I'm assuming something to do with music so you already had that idea of something musical percolating as maybe something you might like to do or could be good at?
1: I did I was I mean I was and obviously still am but such a train spotter music about music as a teenager and and I was really lucky my best friend at school Penny and I would just I mean every spare moment we'd either be at gigs or clubs or record shops or reading the Enemy* and Melody Maker you know anything else in between but yes it was kind of all about music and nobody in my family had worked in the industry so it, it seemed sort hmm. of quite a you know, kind of an unattainable thing or, or, or just I simply didn't know how it worked really. But, you know, from endlessly reading the liner notes and things like that on, on albums, I would start to work out, oh, there's, you know, record companies and there's certain record companies that I seem to have a lot of releases from and Mute would have been one of those, you know, because I put out Nick Cave and Depeche Mode and Erasure and, yeah, I... I knew that I would like to work in music, but I didn't really know how, and that was my sort of magic way in.
0: And were you set at the time on the music industry, like because to my mind, the music and film industry are quite separate, but maybe they cross paths more than I realise. And did you think music in film was something that you might get, or
1: no, not at all? So at that point, it was purely music, and and I agree. I, I think certainly then I thought they were very distinct. I was mm. probably equally dazzled by the idea of the film industry and maybe that seemed even more remote in a way but although in a way I had more connection with that my mother's best friend her husband was uh the art director for Top of the Pops and Blue Peter and Doctor Who and then moved into film so I kind of in a way that was like oh I understand that that has jobs people <laughs> People working, <laughs> but music I just didn't. I mean, we knew I knew musicians, but but yeah, the actual sort of structure of the industry I I didn't know. So it was definitely a baptism by fire for to to go into. And I was really luckily lucky again that it was mute because it was a sort of you know a very it was established and successful, but it was an independent. So I got to see how every part of that worked, and you know, and starting on reception. By literal de- definition, you meet everybody, and mm-hmm. and I was very, you know so excited to be meeting everyone that I sort of probably learned a lot. I was maybe a bit annoying, but I I learned what everyone did and what that meant, and so very quickly then they moved me up into the international department, and so I started to to work kind of as coordinator in that department, seeing again like how okay that's that's how this whole side of things that again I wouldn't even have. Thought about. Mm.
0: And what did that coordinating entail? What were you doing? What kind of invigorated you or excited you about that work?
1: It was so that was very much about because Mute was independent. So, unlike a, a major label where they, so Warner's, for example, would have a Warner office in all the major territories mm. around the world. And therefore, they would have their own staff kind of looking after releases in those territories. Mute didn't. It, it had, um, a, a, an office in America, but other than that, it was all kind of license deals with other companies around the world. So I was the person that was di- literally with. If there was a new Nick Cave album, then they would let me know what kind of master recording they needed to produce those CDs, mainly as it were, then uh, in their own territory. So I would sort of start to see how that both both kind of creatively and business wise those decisions about international releases were made and then also sort of coordinating some of the international PR and again like seeing how those plans and sort of schedules for 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 bands touring for releases how it sort of how it all tied up.
0: And so how did the world of music supervision reveal itself to you at what point did you realise that this was a role?
1: So after after I went to UCL and and I was, again, I was lucky because I stayed in London. I was born in London, grew up in London, stayed in London for for university. And I carried on kind of working a bit at Mute and then with other labels. And then as soon as I graduated, I was like, okay, I actually need to get a job now. And so I started temping and I started actually at Warner Classics, which is the classical label of Warner Records, Warner Music. And I didn't really have any interest in staying in that I you know it was a temp job it was a lovely team but I sort of wasn't necessarily drawn to the music but I had a boss who was really he was brilliant he I think he saw it as a challenge to make me interested in <laughs> um in classical music and when I say classical of course I mean that in the kind of the broadest sense of mm. that you know, a thousand years of, of music history kind of wrapped up in that one term. So he would sort of say to me, well, okay, you, you know, you say you don't really like classical music, but maybe you've been introduced to the wrong things, maybe, and, and that sort of put you off um, in a way. You've seen it as this big, like nebulous <laughs> lump of music, which which I think is right. And I think a lot of people get put off by that. So he was like, well, you know, you like Electronic music. So why don't you listen to Steve Reich and you like big dramatic artists like Kate Bush? So why don't you try some Wagner? Like, or making these connections that would kind of lead you into things that you wouldn't necessarily have um, thought about. And he was right. And I, and you know, there's still massive chunks of that music that I'm not interested in or that don't, don't move me in a way. Mozart concertos or whatever it is. But I did find as, and I could then see and and kind of develop my own obsessions with certain uh, ways through that. And one, so obviously at Warner's, we um, uh, we also looked after the label Non Such in the UK, which put out Steve Reich and Philip Glass whenever at that point. And and suddenly I started making these connections. I was like, oh wow, well that's also. The composer who did the music for that film that I really loved and I'd never really thought about how that came about or but starting to put like real people into those connections and I suppose the probably the biggest influence in in making that connection was um the fact that we had George Ligarty the composer and so I was his PR for the last seven years of his life in a way and um and got to, to, I was so lucky to get to know him. And he, again, I was like, when I first heard the name, I was like, no, never heard of, no idea. This old Hungarian man with a very kind of, you know, sort of stringent t- type of music. And and then it's like, oh no, but it's the music from 2001 and The Shining. And it's like, of course I know. I just would never have made those connections. So that's, that's how I started sort of thinking more about music and film. I'd always loved it. I just don't think I'd thought about how it actually kind of came about or who made those choices or so then Michael Nyman asked me to manage him. So I left Warners after seven years and went to manage him. And that was at the time when he was working on Man on Wire and James James Marsh had asked him to score it. Michael didn't have time at that point to score it. But he opened up his back catalogue to James and said, basically, you can make a new score from existing music. Right. So, And even now, I think lots of people don't realise that when they watch Man on Wire, uh, that it mm-hmm. is all pre-existing music. But and it, and it was edited so well that it does just sound like the perfect score for the mm-hmm. films. So that's when I sort of started seeing Inside the Edit sweet because i would go in i'd like take i'd find things of michael's that hadn't been released or whatever and take them in and and start to see that process again in a more technical way coming to light and then john Bortwood was music supervising it and so that's how i met him he was also he was head of uh the film and tv department at music sales which is now wise music And which was also Michael Nyman's publisher. So that's kind of how it had all come about. That's how I met John, started seeing what he did in his role as music supervisor, which in that case was about the, you know, this suggesting the music and going Mm. filtering through the music, seeing what felt right for different scenes, but also working out the business side of it and how, because obviously it wasn't, you know, Michael wasn't paid a fee in terms of Work for hire and, you know, bespoke music. It was like, okay, we're going to use all of this. How do we make this work, you know, in a business way as well? So yeah, each of these other steps, I was kind of learning more about how as a job, how, how it worked. And then after, after about a year with Michael, I, I left and John asked me to come and work for music sales uh, in the film and TV department and. So I was working there. They had a have an amazing roster of film composers, and so I was working with them. But then I'd also made it clear to John that I wanted to, you know, do some music supervision myself. And so that's when I started. You know, and he was great. He was such a. He and Susan Tilley at Music South really basically taught me how licenses work. What are the, you know, the things you need to think about. From both sides. And, and actually, I feel very lucky that I learned it from a publisher's side because it gave, I think it, as a music supervisor, it, it gives me a, a greater understanding of the sorts of things that rights holders are mm. thinking about and are worried about. And, you know, when I'm coming to them for things. So, so yeah, that's a long way of saying how I, how I got to that point.
0: I want to pin that thought about the legals because we will come back to it because I don't obviously totally understand that and it'd be good to get into it but what strikes me about your trajectory is that lots of these opportunities arose where people asked you to come and work for them and I'm wondering how you manifested that you know was it the curiosity was it an eagerness to learn you know how are you holding yourself that made you a good fit for those opportunities if that makes sense.
1: Yeah it does make sense and I think I think that also really sums up how I've treated my career if you can call call it that or that's the right word for it but that I've never I haven't really been I know a lot of people have this sort of goal and you know and they work putting certain things in place to get to it Mm -hmm. and I don't think I've ever been like that that's not to say there haven't been things where I've thought oh that's interesting I'd like to do it Mm -hmm. but I feel it's been much more organic. And, and as you say, it's literally been people saying, do you fancy doing this? And me making that decision of whether it felt right or not. Mm. And and so maybe subconsciously, I was thinking about some sort of, you know, longer end goal. But essentially, it's been sort of step by step. Does this feel right? Is this something I'm interested in? Are these the right people? For me to kind of either align myself with or or spend, you know, however long working with. So yeah, very, very organic, I would say.
0: And then how did you go about getting your first credit as a music supervisor, which I believe, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but on IMDb, I think it says it's the, Samantha Morton's TV film, The Unloved, in 2009. That's right. So what was your path for that job? Well, that was a, a nice sort of combination of things. So when
1: I was working directly for Michael Nyman, um, he scored a film called, I actually can't remember what it ends up being called, either True North or Far North. It kind of had a working title and then a, so, but one of those, it was just a lovely film. And the, um, production manager on that was this really great girl called, um, Emma Murphy. And we'd spent quite a lot of time working together during that, obviously, mm. because she was, I was the sort of conduit for, for Michael. So then we've kept in touch. And when I joined music sales, she came to me. And I think probably because she didn't know anybody else with that role. And I'm sure it's something we'll talk about more. But back then, there actually weren't that many people doing that. But But I was a person that she knew that was in music, that, you know, worked for a company that did music supervision as well. So she came to me, but the nice coincidence was that I already knew Samantha because she had dated a dear friend of mine. So we'd like met through that and I knew I loved her, I obviously knew I loved her work, but she was, you know, amazing. So it all kind of came together in a very sort of seemingly random but also collegiate way serendipitous yeah and so that's yeah. how I met obviously amazing Kate Ogborn who produced that and Tony Grissoni who co-wrote it with Sam and who I've gone on to work with a lot since and adore so it's yeah that it's funny how much that film actually yeah it is my first credit but it also says so much about the other things that have happened after
0: and do you feel like it was a natural fit? Like once you were doing that, you were like, oh, this is what I'm meant to be doing. Or, you know, was it was it hard? Was it scary to suddenly take on that responsibility? It
1: was nerve wracking at times. You know, it was definitely, obviously, it was very low budget. So it was, um, there was a lot to be done with not a huge amount. So that was, yeah, that was nerve wracking. And, and it's funny, because I think there are things that at the time were very stressful about it, you know, the idea of, not clearing something in time for the shoot or all those things that Mm. and and they still come up now so they never really go away but um but I guess you just learn more about how to deal with them and how to hopefully navigate them in a way that is less stressful so there were definitely stressful moments about it but but it was great and and I think I think the most important thing was that Sam and I have quite a a similar music taste I mean that's not isn't always the most important thing but on this one in particular I think it really helped and and we were talking about music that was kind of in an area where I already knew a lot of people so for example there's like a couple of tracks from Warp Records and I know the Warp team really well so those sorts of things where it's like because it's so much about relationships Mm. this job and trust and yeah of course you're also going to have to track down people that you have no contact with and whatever but but definitely for that first one it really helped that it was a lot of it was working with people who I'd kind of met from the music side and I felt like we were kind of going through it together in a sort of really nice supportive way.
0: Once you'd had that initial credit, did you find that there was a bit of a snowball effect with your career? Like as you referenced, there weren't that many people doing it. And so as soon as you announced yourself as I can do this, did you find that there was a lot of uptake? It definitely
1: did. And and what what I found was that, and it's not, but obviously producer, director, great, is lovely if you build that relationship and they go on to work on other things and you'll work again with them. But also like Colin, who, uh, Colin Moni, who edited that, he then goes on to something else and that mentions they need a music supervisor. And so we did, um, the arbor and then Tim Barker, who was sound on that was also there. So these things where you sort of like everyone involved at any stage, you know, mm-hmm. if you've, if you've clicked with them and had that nice, um, relationship, then they're going to go on to other things and, and recommend you or, yeah. So, so definitely mm-hmm. word of mouth is like you, or certainly then was a huge part for me.
0: I don't think I would have realised that about music supervision, because it sounds like it could be quite a sequestered role, like you're just, you know, in your studio, or, you know, working a email. How is it that you're in collaboration or in conversation with, you know, so much of the, so, so many elements. of the other HODs, yeah. like editors and whatnot?
1: Yeah, and of course, every job is is different. And I must say that I think COVID made that much more difficult. And And I think that's one of the reasons I found found that period so hard actually is I really missed being able to pop into the edit and sit with the editor and see how mm. they're getting on and what are their needs you know yet you're right the main conversations will be with director and producer but that relationship with editor with sound team with and, and even before that with you know if you can go on set or if you can meet actors who are involved before and have those conversations because if there's any sort of on camera music, then that's really important to make sure you've had that conversation with them that they feel comfortable with whatever, you know, they're having to do that's related to music. And then obviously in post, there's lots, you know, with the post production team and yeah, it definitely feeds into more of the HODs than, than you might imagine.
0: And presumably it helps inform your own understanding of the world of the film that then might impact some Absolutely. of the music choices.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, when you see editors at work and often often editors come with lots of music ideas themselves. You know, mm. some of them really have. And especially if they've, you know, if they've sort of taken the, the temp music role on a bit. And, you know, and that sparks conversations, which is great as well.
0: Well, let's kind of drift more into the craft. And I'm really interested in what those initial conversations with the director looked like, because obviously they can maybe name bands that they like. But how do you go about establishing the soundscape or what the film's going to sound like and what kind of direction you might be heading in?
1: I think especially now, music supervisors come on at script stage. And that's for kind of a whole variety of reasons, partly for you to decide whether or not you want to be Part of it, whether you think it's a good script, a script that you, you know, can, can work with, can bring something to partly to check what kind of music might be written into the script. And that could be all sorts of different things. It could be as, you know, as straightforward as the Beatles twist and shout is playing in the bar. And those are the kinds of things that you, you know, need to highlight. Mainly so you can work to pick something out. If it was the Beatles, Twist and Soutts playing mm-hmm. in a bar, then you can um, highlight that as something that's probably going to have to be changed or other things. It could be more like just, it doesn't even say that music's playing, but it's a driving scene. So you yourself can then bring up those conversations of, Oh, is, is that somewhere that we'd, you know, need music? And obviously then if there's any sort of on camera performance, Though so that all feeds into those initial conversations you'll then have with the director. And those will look something like, I see you've chosen this song or it's written as a script or is that the, is, you know, is that the, the vibe that you're going for here? Is that the era that you're thinking about? And then I think every director's different, but you know, asking those questions of, do you only want to use songs diegetically? You know, do you also want to score those questions where lots of little kind of flags as it were will build your understanding of what it is that they're looking for how much work that's going to be and where and when that work is going to you know come come into play and just start i mean some some directors are really confident about talking about music and will straight away be like is the playlist that I've been mm. listening making and listening to for the past 3 years and this is, you know, essentially what I want and and others are more open about maybe not being so confident in the vocabulary of, of music. And so then it's more your job to sort of suggest things that they respond to because I can totally understand that like having to I think some directors are much more at home with the kind of the visual aspects of it so that they could have that conversation with a set designer or a costume designer or whatever. But music is abstract in a way. And, and so having the fact that sometimes you might have to say, particularly, I often find references of other films, a good way to start a conversation that if it's seeming like it's, you know, that they're struggling, it's like, what did you like about that film what did you and and if you liked that then why don't we think about this that those sorts mm. of conversations where it's sort of allowing them to to lead it but at the same time not having to start from a blank sort of page on it
0: and do you have a preference is there an easier or more rewarding way of working where for instance if a director has written in a specific song into a script or comes with a playlist you know does that give you sort of a palette to work with or is it sometimes easier if you've, you're you starting with a blank canvas so they don't really know what they want
1: I actually do like it if they come with ideas I think that's that's great <laughs> I, I like that a lot but it, it depends how open they are about it because you know if they if they come to you with this this sort of very concrete playlist then There are all sorts of reasons why that those songs might not actually work. You know, everything from cost to clearance to if it's not necessarily the director who's going to have the final decision on that, then a studio not loving it, whatever. And so so as long as they are open to discussion and and, you know, changes and replacements, then that's really the main thing I don't mind whether they come with loads of ideas or not but just that open-mindedness I think mm. is the most key thing
0: where are you you know even beginning to go to discover songs I think it was yeah it was Justin Kerzel. I read a quote in a profile about you where he said that you you come back with things that he would just never in a million years have kind of thought to um, uncover so where does that discovery process begin for you?
1: A lot of it is just years and years of being a kind of obsessive music lover, you know, and that isn't to say that I, you know, know everything and every genre. If I'm really honest, there are films or projects I wouldn't work on because I wouldn't feel comfortable about being able to bring the kind of knowledge that those projects required and the sort of authenticity that they required recently I seem to have been maybe not even recently maybe always but working quite a lot on period pieces and of course and and when I say period it could be you know the 90s like after sun or the 50s like little birds or the 20s and 30s like life after life so those are you know they they obviously have their boundaries unless unless a director has decided that they're going to go you know um with a sort of a different kind of soundtrack not a period authentic soundtrack but you know that just allows for really deep digging in in different ways you know again over the years you learn which labels have great catalogues for certain periods so there'll be you know, something like Peer Records, I know that Peer Music, they've got a really interesting South American catalogue. So, you know, those sorts of of things where, so you can go to them and say, these are the, you know, this is the the era, this is the location, what have you got that, you know, from from there? So it's a lot, again, about those, those sort of random bits of information and connections that you can call on because of course you can't be the container of all knowledge for every every scenario Um, but it's sort of a mixture of yeah your own knowledge and taste plus knowing where to go to ask for things.
0: Yeah absolutely like you're not the oracle but you know, you might know someone that is an oracle about that specific. Exactly. And I'm wondering, like, how you know when a track is working? Are you are you kind of watching it against the scene and, you know, comparing and contrasting? Or are you sending like a bunch of tracks to director and saying, okay, take your pick? I
1: think that when when a track really works to picture, it's so obvious that it just takes on a sort of another level from anything else that you've tried and it's very clear but then that's not to say it's very clear for you know for the whole team and maybe they'll have a different idea about it but I think it is pretty obvious but yes so that is just simply trying things over and over against Mm. um against the picture it depends I mean often if I've started let's say on Life After Life which was you know set in those very specific years I would start the project by putting together like big playlists of, of music for those years and you know and for different sort of uh emotions and whatever for those years and send them to the editor because then while they're even you know in the early stage even when you're still filming but they're starting to do their assembly then they've got things to pull from so So it may be that something has come about simply because it was in a big bunch of songs and they happened to choose it and it really works. So that's that's fine. When it's more a kind of a scene sent back to me as like a a challenge, we need to find something for us. Then, yeah, it's just playing things over and over.
0: And I guess that's an interesting one because you might you know love a song and think it's, you know, really working for this moment and a director might be a bit undecided or not feel the same way how far do you push that are you kind of trying to persuade them or are you just backing off and saying you know it's your film I, I'll find a different track if you want me to
1: probably depends how like if it's someone I've worked with before what you you know it's, it's what your relationship with them yeah. is like you can have that almost sort of quite jokey conversation where it's you know where I can sort of say well you know I think you're wrong and I think that yeah. I think that I'm right and let's ask a few more other people and see what they think then yeah and it, it then I would but ultimately no I mean like that's the thing that of course I always remember is that it isn't my film you know it's I'm serving somebody else's vision and, and help hopefully helping to enable that for them so no
0: and besides having, you know, this eclectic knowledge of music and and these relationships, what do you think it is that makes you a good music supervisor or a good music supervisor in the round?
1: I think it is so much about relationships and possibly, you know, possibly more than a lot of other HODs because, and and that's not to say it's good or bad. It just means that you you are you kind of in between because it's. You're suggesting things to directors and producers and whoever else, but ultimately you're having to go back to this, you know, whole other world of music rights owners, and they are in control of, to a certain extent, of whether or not you can do something. So it's yeah, I would say it's even more about almost sort of the kind of diplomatic side of it um, that than other HODs might might be.
0: Mm, yeah, that's true. And you referenced budget earlier. Obviously, we have to talk about, you know, how much budget you're given and how that affects what kind of songs you can go for. But also what affects the cost of a song? You know, is it that the popular number ones that always going to be more expensive or are there other factors as to how much a song costs
1: to clear? Costs of songs are, I mean, it, it's endlessly fascinating to me. And also, you know, obviously sometimes really frustrating but I understand you know and and that's what you have to want to think about and often I have to have that sort of conversation with a director who maybe isn't understanding why we can't use something and it's like you know musician and that's again why I'm pleased I came from the sort of the music side the record company side the publisher side is that they are the artist you know whoever wrote and recorded those songs you know It is entirely their choice whether or not they want to be involved with your project, whether or not they, and what they think they should be paid for that if they are happy to be involved with it. So yes, there's, of course, there's an element of you can explain to them why it's so important and why you don't have any more money and why whatever. But if they say no, they say no. And, and you do, you know, you need to respect that. But in terms of of course, there's no rate card other than production music, which we you know about, but there isn't a rate card, and sometimes you are surprised at certain songs that you- perhaps personally wouldn't have considered to be that famous or whatever, but the rights holder or the the writer or the musician does and They want a certain rate for it or a certain fee for it. And, and that's that other ones you can, you know, there are other, it it can go the other way. And there's sort of songs where you're like, okay, wow, that's amazing. I I think that's a really famous song and, and it's not that expensive. But generally the rule would be, yes, the more famous the song is, the more expensive it's going to be and more for catalog in a way, because, you know, and, and that's again, it's partly because, you know, if you want an eighties song, There is a a limited number of songs that you can have by the definition of it's it's in the past. If you want a song now, it's much more open, you know, unless you're very specific about the artist. You know, there are probably lots of songs that are big right now that you could you could afford. But yeah, that catalogue is is expensive.
0: And when you are working with an independent film budget, how do you approach that? You know, is it a case of thinking, OK, maybe we can get two big hitters and then we'll, you know, pepper out the the rest of the soundtrack with lesser known tracks? Is it about going completely unknown? Like, what's your approach to that?
1: Often it is. I mean, especially if, let's say, there were a couple of songs that were written into the script and for whatever reason, the writer or writer-director and or director really want those you know and they feel like it's so important to to it then probably the route exactly would be to okay well let's use our you know uh, the the budget mainly on those and then we'll have to dig in and and as you say have songs that are unknown but great and you know and there is there's so much of that it depends what you want that song to to sort of say in a way and um and the only ones Aren't going to be cheaper. The ones that say I'm famous and you can, you know, and sort of sing along to. Mm. But yeah, that probably that way. I mean, I also love. It, there's something so nice about bringing an unknown song to a new audience, mm. whether that's old or new. That's, I mean, possibly or rather probably more satisfying. I mean, I know every, of course, everyone right now is talking about running up that hill and and Stranger Things. And that's brilliant. And, and I thought it worked so well. On the other hand, it's not mind blowing that running up that hill <laughs> worked brilliantly. And mm-hmm. It is one of the greatest songs ever written. <laughs> you know, it's not. And I'm really happy that it seems to be, you know, introducing itself to, to a younger generation. That's great. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's a huge, huge song. And there, and there's a certain thing about huge songs. That generally work to picture in certain, you know, most ways. And so that that's not doing down the choice of it or you know, or Nora's decision to use it or whatever.
0: Just a quick what's what the Nora Lucy refers to is Nora Felder, who is the music supervisor for Stranger Things and was responsible for the inclusion of Kate Bush's running up that hill during a pivotal moment in the latest season. But it's just Mm. it's not a
1: massive surprise. I'm probably more interested in those you know those small songs that suddenly are brought to a whole new audience
0: And it can sometimes work, especially I think in a TV series or that or, or something where there's a recurring audience where it works in a show's favor, where you kind of know that it has, like, I remember, um, watching Wonder Hill when I was growing up and I used to think that had an amazing soundtrack. And actually I would discover so many bands and new songs through that. And it it became one of the reasons I love the show was that I would, I would get me like music introduction to new music from them. So. Definitely, that was one of those ways. series
1: that did that, wasn't it? Along with, yeah. with Gossip Girl, The OC, or whatever. But yeah, I agree.
0: And, and coming back to the the clearance process, obviously, you hear lots of stories of uh, directors writing heartfelt letters to musicians. Is that always the way that you have to go back to the source? Sometimes is it just through the publisher? How talk me through that clearance process? So
1: the basic process is always through the publisher for the the copyright, the writing copyright and the record company for the recording. And I would pretty much always recommend people go that way, not least because, you know, often you'll get someone saying, oh, well, you know, I've got a connection to whoever the artist might be. Why don't I ask them directly? Mm. And it might ultimately come to a point that that would help, but To start off with that can often really annoy rights holders it's better to get them on board first and and then sort of see how that goes so so yes essentially that Mm. would be the thing I would do first
0: one of the other things I did want to ask you about is that the the notion of a needle drop, you know, people people love to talk about it, especially you see, you see it on Twitter, you know, once a film is released and everyone's talking about that big musical moment. Is that something that you're seeking out? And someone has said, like, we need a needle drop moment here. Or that's just something that occurs to you in hindsight, that audiences pick up on without you even intending for it? I
1: think probably mostly that way round. It's just, it, it's been part of the process you haven't thought of it necessarily any mm. differently than any other the only times i've had it maybe spoken about in a more specific way is from the studio if if a studio has sort of almost said we need a needle drop we need you know we need mm. something that is going to be that elevating moment through through music for whatever re- reason but mm. um that's normally come from a studio Conversation rather than the sort of the creative director conversation.
0: And is that something that you think studios have asked for more, particularly in the era of like social media marketing where things need to be a bit more like clippable or shareable? Do you find? Yeah,
1: Yeah. definitely. And, and that idea of sort of end credit song or whatever, anything that brings in an artist that they see would become part of a marketing campaign then yes.
0: Yeah, that's a thought, actually. Are you sometimes given artists that you're like, we have to choose something from them? You know, are you ever dictated as to what you might have to choose?
1: Personally, I haven't, but then maybe I don't work necessarily on the kinds of projects that that might come up. On Assassin's Creed, there was a lot of talk about, you know, having the kind of artist that would bring... Like I say, it's a, a marketing campaign of itself. But just that was not Justin's conversation, and so he and I were, you know, so that's why we ended up with young fathers, and because that's what felt right for the film. And having said that, New Regency were brilliant and and loved it and totally agreed. But it was just funny because it was very different from the early conversations that we'd had about what an end credit song mm. might be and and what kind of artist it might be.
0: And talking about some of the other films that you've worked on, I was lucky enough to see After Sun recently. and I'm so pleased you've seen it. Got a very special place in my heart. And and actually one of the things I loved about it, and I'm not just saying this, is the soundtrack. Um, mm. You had Catatonia in there. You had R.E.M. So many favourites. So what were the kind of conversations that you were having with Charlotte? Because the 90s to me feels particularly expansive and the types of music that were coming out in that era. That's so how true, did you sort yeah. of pinpoint what kind of nineties vibe you were going for?
1: Well, Charlie was amazing to work with on this. And you know, and obviously because it's her own script as well. And she had written. And so, you know, that some of those I don't want to give away too much, I know, but people haven't seen it, but um but you know, some of those certainly the, the on camera songs she had thought of herself. They were, you know, they were things that she really hoped to use. So that was more of a challenge of how do we get to afford those? And then because it was very specific date-wise, year, you know, era-wise, and also is set in that specific location, you know, the sort of the European holiday. So it's almost, you know, it is very... British even though it's in Turkey because of the nature of the that holiday resort and so it was really thinking about that you know this wasn't going to be what was cool on the radio in London or you know or sort of Mm -hmm. uh, if you be if it had been set in the UK it was more what would be on the radio and what would have been known at that time but what would also have made that leap to European resort so yeah, that was it, it was great I mean there, there were a lot of songs in there that before I read that script I wouldn't have considered I would have you know what wouldn't have thought I necessarily get to put in a film That and and that's just not it's not even a sort of a good or bad taste thing it's just a it, it, there's so specific and an energy that you know you you couldn't put them in something without them sort of really saying something
0: yeah and it, it it showed me how even just a glimmer of a song can add to like a feeling like there's a moment I think you hear the Macarena in the background but then also a moment where Sophie's like listening to something on headphones and yeah, you can't really so, hear the song but no, you can just it's about
1: like tell it it is three seconds of it or something and it's but yes, yeah and
0: it goes to show that even just like a little nugget of music can kind of add add to the feeling you know on the other end of the spectrum you've got this is england this is england '90s. sorry the series um yes. which is obviously sat in the same era but is a bit more acid house is it fair to say yeah like, totally a very like completely different side of the 90s talk to me about how you found that very eclectic selection of, of music i mean if i'm honest then
1: you know this is in the 90s was more like me just going back to how i was in night you know what i was listening to, like, <laughs> yeah. very much like that and Shane who I just adore and and who again we like we just have very similar tastes so it's a very sort of like like chatting with a friend really about you know the kind of person I would have made a playlist for in 1990 and we would have shared things and 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 Shane who's such a music lover you know he really mm. he knows so much he knows what he loves and and he knows what his characters love as well you know he's he's grown like that you know they're his characters and he's also kind of grown up with them in a way and all of those actors have grown up together and so yeah that was in a in a way i guess what you you might say like a a cooler sort of vision of of that period of of music and and what would have been really kind of fresh then you know all of that happy monday stuff whatever it's like yeah you might have heard it on the radio but really would have sounded kind of new and exciting. So um yeah, I I love Singham. The but then yeah. he was also it was really interesting because he would he would have these like the William Onyeabor song that's in there. And we would talk about that because essentially there's no way that I mean the the Onyibor album had been released, you know, technically uh mm. by then, but there's no way that they would have had that playing. But he he was like no it feels that's what he wanted it feels really right so and it's gorgeous it's like and I'm sure it's possibly the first time lots of people had heard that song so um Shane is fab
0: and a big shout out to um featuring the band James which doesn't get used enough I don't think in soundtracks I love them (laughs) I love James too and another project I want to talk about, which I just love with all my heart is Daphne, Peter Mackie Burns' film. And what I want to talk about with that is obviously the era is less specific. It's sort of now, which weirdly, I guess because we're living in it, just, I don't know, it feels like a bit more of a mishmash. But I'm wondering when you're presented with a project like that, that maybe isn't as specific an era, but feels very specific in place. Again, how does that inform the music choices that you're making?
1: That was actually a rare one where I actually came on in post. It had already filmed they already had quite a lot of temp in there and some of which worked and some of it didn't peter and i talked a lot about that i mean essentially when i came on that was the main conversation really was sort of what was working what was not and when it wasn't like or even when it was but what was he trying to get out of those scenes what was he trying to say with the music he was lovely so such a sweetheart to work with and and it was so much about trying to get inside Daphne's head you know she's such Mm. a a unique character and we just thought that she kind of wasn't cool in the terms of like playing the most up-to-date music or being like but she was very much living in a you know in urban London and you know you can't help but be influenced by that. So a lot of it was about, like you say, about the place, you know, I remember the scenes of her walking through those markets and, you know, we actually had to recreate because they picked the sound they'd taken from those scenes, had songs playing like from yes. random stalls. And some of that we had to basically recreate because for whatever reason we couldn't clear or we couldn't, mm-hmm. um, but it was about, it was about keeping it authentic still. What does that, elephant and castle market sound like when you're walking <laughs> through it what are the kind of random things that you're picking up and that was kind of that, yeah that was a real treat to sort of work that out
0: and then finally, we have to talk about TAR. I think I'm saying that right. It's got a little accent on yes. the a, But um, this is Todd Phil- Field's latest project. And obviously, we, we haven't seen him do anything since Little Children, which is very exciting. That was back in 2006. And it's set in the world of international classical music. So in a way, it kind of ties a nice little bow with your career and kind of brings oh you back to God, the classical God, stuff. It really does. I have
1: to say, when, when Universal Pictures Music Department first contacted me about it, and they sent me the script. And I was literally like, oh my, has he written it for me? Like, and it was such, it was such, I don't mean, you know, just like in the funny as well. I couldn't believe how many of the references and uh, scenarios, you know, from my time at Warners, from some of the artists i work worked with. I mean, literally some of the artists I've worked with are talked about in <laughs> In the oh, school, wow. sorry, in the script, and and I just fell in love with it. The script was amazing. I never met Tom before, so then we spoke, and that was just it made made me love the whole project more. He he, he is from a um, a musical background, actually, but, more, but he studied um, jazz. He knows so much about that. So classical world, he knew a bit about, but he'd obviously just done so much research and got it. I mean. From my perspective, just with such authenticity, it was incredible. So yes, I mean, we had a week in Dresden last September, uh, filming with the Dresden Philharmonic and Kate mm. conducting. And it's, I mean, yeah, I'm so excited for this to film to be out. i off to Venice next week for the, for the premiere. And it's, yeah, I, I, I think it, it I don't want to say it's a once in a in a career opportunity but if it was I wouldn't mind cuz as in to to work on a film where music is everything in you know mm, it, it's so just, integral to the story It really is and so yeah I feel very lucky
0: Is there added pressure when that's the case? When when you feel like maybe the classical community are going to see it, respond to it? Does that add another level of oh my god, this song really has to be right?
1: It does, and and I've definitely thought about that. And it's been interesting seeing like some of obviously there's hardly anything out. I think you've probably seen that teaser trailer, but yeah, uh, literally nothing. (laughs) But literally, that's that's kind of says nothing in terms of Mm. you know the the content in a way maybe. Maybe something more about the philosophy of it, but, and I've even just done on that, looking at that and seeing some notes of, or some comments of people saying, you know, and saying all sorts of things, saying, you know, the, the kind of a classic, like, Oh God, it's going to be another, another film where embarrassing kind of people miming along to things. And I am just like, Oh my God, you wait till you see it. There is no miming along to in this no. film. And so that was quite scary because it was like, no, no, we actually have to have it on screen. Like, there's no mm. way of faking this if if you're going to do it in the way that Todd's vision was and whatever. So, it was, yeah, it was definitely nerve wracking. But then it was just a really good example of putting the right team in place and mm. you know, in the way we thought about who was going to for example record the sound you know the for the orchestral scenes because you can't just use the normal sound team for that you know you're recording an orchestra and you want it to sound like you are watching an orchestra and so the whole thing was no we're going to get in the sound team who normally record you know the, the deutsche grammophon's recording of right. Daniel Barenboim conducting you know the Beethoven symphonies or whatever Mm. you know they know exactly how to mic an orchestra and to how to work with those kinds of concert halls to make it sound like you are in the room with an orchestra Mm. so it's like yeah and so once you've done that and you can feel confident that they've captured what you need then that's sort of half the battle it's oh god I can't wait till it's out
0: we spoke about obviously at the beginning, there weren't many people that did music supervision. Have you seen that role kind of bloom? And and I'm wondering also your perspective on how the role itself or how working in the film industry has changed in the time that you've been doing this job? It's
1: definitely grown. I would say almost every film and TV project now thinks about having a music supervisor, which is great. It's so nice that it's grown like that. And, and I think that the understanding of what that role can bring and add to a production has definitely grown. I think that what hasn't probably caught up in a way is the business respect for that. And for example, right now in, in the US, so we have a guild of music supervisors here and in the US and in Canada, but mm. in the US, they're really pushing to unionise and for all the you know the the reasons that it's like it's it isn't a, a head of department role it's right. so important to the production and yet the fees and the almost respect for the role hasn't quite caught up with that mm. um and so so for example it means you usually have to have quite a few different projects on at the same time and that's partly because you don't know how long they're going to be, and you know if you take on something for a fee and it stretches from what was meant to be a kind of nine month thing to an eighteen month thing, it's like you can't budget for that i mean it's you know it's it's just not fair where every other h o d would be being you know paid in a more sort of time limited way, so that definitely needs to be addressed. So people don't burn out or don't leave mm. the business because they sort of.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it becomes more sustainable. And is that about just more people understanding what the role entails? What, what is the change that you think needs to happen there for that respect to grow? I think it is that. And I think probably, I mean,
1: ironically, having not, not dismissed the use of the running up that hill, but you know, those kinds of moments are probably the things that make And particularly, you know, studios or, you know, or, or big production companies realize that, no, this needs to, that this needs to be taken seriously and people need to be recompensed properly for, for the additional work that, that, or or focus that, um, that music can bring to a project.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I'll try and get this out wide and far in which case. I am also wondering if there's something that you consider to be the biggest learning curve of your career so far. Gosh, I think I think
1: definitely this is a, probably more of a personal thing that I have a tendency to want to please. I mean, I know lots of people have that. Maybe lots of people in in my kinds of roles have that as well. You know, it's you want people to be excited about the things you you brought, or you want to you know deliver what they needed. But I think even though I've always known it and sort of more of a relaxed um, approach to the fact that I am not always in charge, but in, in this role, you know, it is so much to do with other people having to agree to things as well, that basically being more straightforward about what's possible or not. And that, you know, certain things are not possible until you've had them confirmed. And that's not your fault. That is just the way things are. So so, yeah, I've definitely learned a lot about that. Trying not to say to people, yeah, that'll be fine. That'll be no problem. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, managing until, expectations. Until it is. And it's and it's difficult because, of course, when you pull off something that's quite tough or, you know, it's a bit of a coup that you've pulled it off. It's such a high to that. You know, you feel really mm-hmm. great about it, but it means that then they expect you to do it every time.
0: <laughs> is there something like that that comes to mind that for you was a coup to to get a specific song in a film?
1: I think I think that after sun use. I don't know if we even want to say because it, it's such a beautiful, but you can the imagine dance scene. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah.
0: Maybe we'll <laughs> we'll leave that. Yeah, so.
1: it was Charlie's choice. That was her choice. But as you know, that is a huge song, and and to have to bring everyone on board like that with you know two of the biggest artists in the world ever, and they were great. They were really great, and we you know we really worked together to make that happen but um it it still feels because it's all quite fresh still having that Mm. but it still feels like a big one to have done
0: and finally i would love to know if there's a film by a woman director that you would like to recommend today
1: oh i love this question and i mean there are so many and funnily enough when i was thinking about it i think a lot of the you know those sort of what are your favorite film things i go back to sort of those First films that I remember watching, and I was thinking, God, there were so many huge films directed by women in the eighties and nineties, and it seems a real shame that that didn't lead to more of a a surge earlier than you know mm. we had to wait a lot longer because because I was thinking Big and Desperately Seeking Susan, and but I think I mean I think Desperately Seeking Susan probably would be the one. That I choose just because I really, I can remember it so clearly seeing it first time. I think it's, and I think it's brilliant. I think it stands the test of time. And I suppose also because it has, you know, music is such a, a key element to it. It, it not mm. uh, obviously songs in it, but also that sort of crossover thing of choosing Madonna to be in it and, mm. and everything that, that brought to it at the time, you know, and being a massive Madonna fan then and then probably watching it because of that so i like that that link between between the two mm. worlds
0: lucy thank you so much i've really uh, enjoyed our conversation i found it so insightful and yeah thank you so much for your time you've been very generous with it oh not at all i love listening to your podcast Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe, spread the good word, etc. In the meantime, have a great week and I'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode.